If you would please open in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, we are continuing our morning sermon series through the Gospel of Mark, and we find ourselves uh, this morning in Mark chapter 10, verse 13 through 16. Mark chapter 10, verse 16, or verse 13 through 16. Would you please give attention now to the reading of God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, we come now to your holy and to your inspired Word. This is not the word of mere man. This is God's holy word. And I pray, O Father, that all of us here in this room would treat it as such, and that we would come ready and expectant of you to do mighty things through the proclamation of it. Work in our hearts this hour, we pray, and draw us ever near to your throne of grace. And feed us that bread that has come down from heaven, even Jesus Christ our Lord. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Last time we met, we found Jesus and the disciples at the beginning of chapter 10 uh, leaving Capernaum. Uh, Chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, and and verse 1, we we are told from Mark that that Jesus and the disciples leave Capernaum and really end what is called Jesus' Galilean ministry. And what we are told is they cross over the Jordan uh, into the region of Judea. And we mentioned then when we looked at that a couple weeks back that Jesus from here on out is really going to make a fast track toward the cross in Jerusalem, where he is going to die. And you recall back in chapter 8, beginning in verse 31, Jesus predicted and told his disciples that he was going to be handed over by the chief priests and elders and be killed, and three days later rise again. And ever since, really, that prediction Ever since Jesus told his disciples of his death that he will meet in Jerusalem, what we have really seen is a series of lessons uh, that Jesus has given to his disciples, a series of lessons given to his disciples as to what it means uh, to be a true disciple, to be a true follower of Christ. And throughout these lessons, really what we have seen is we've seen a consistent sort of pattern that has flowed ever since really Peter's great confession that Jesus is the Christ and that prediction of the cross in Jerusalem. We've seen a a particular pattern, and really the pattern is a two-part pattern. You have the disciples who misunderstand what it means to be a true follower and disciple of Christ, 
And then you have Jesus responding, correcting their misunderstanding and giving them a proper understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. We saw it back in chapter 8 with Peter denying Christ the cross and Jesus giving them a lesson on how all disciples must pick up their cross and follow him, correcting Jesus, uh, Peter's misunderstanding that the kingdom of God was connected to might and brawn. Jesus having to correct them that, no, the kingdom of God comes through suffering and persecution in this world. We saw it in chapter 9 when the disciples are discussing, you recall, who is the greatest among them. And once again, Jesus has to correct them and give them a lesson that the greatest, if they are to be the greatest, they must be last of all and servant of all. And we saw it again in chapter 9 when John and the disciples, you recall, sought to stop a man from casting out demons in the name of Christ. And once again, Jesus has to correct them and tell them that anyone who is not against them is for them. And then last time we met in chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, we saw Jesus have to correct the disciples and their understanding of marriage Uh, We have the parallel account in Matthew where where the disciples are really on the same page with the Pharisees, asking Jesus who then can get married as Jesus tells them about the commitment and long-term commitment that is marriage. And once again, Jesus has to correct the disciples on what it means to be married, the loyalty of marriage and the long-term commitment that marriage is. So what we have seen over the last few weeks is really this repetitive pattern ever since Peter's great confession and Jesus's prediction of the cross. You see the disciples misunderstanding what it means to be a disciple, saying something foolish and Jesus correcting them and maturing their understanding of what it means to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. And what we see here in our passage in chapter 10, verse 13 through 16, is that same pattern continues. The disciples are foolish in their understanding of children and their involvement in the kingdom, and Jesus again is forced to correct them. So what I want us to see today is really two things concerning children and the kingdom of God that is brought to our attention in these three verses here. First, the kingdom of God is for children. And second, the kingdom of God must be received like children. The kingdom of God is for children. The kingdom of God must be received like children. First, the kingdom of God is for children. Verse 14, Jesus, upon seeing the disciples rebuke the parents who are bringing these children to Jesus... We are told by Mark that he was indignant. Now, this is a very strong word that really has the idea of being incensed. He's offended. He's irate. We use the language when we see somebody really angry, we say, man, that guy is hot. That's what this word really seems to indicate. Jesus is hot with anger at the idea that these disciples are seeking to rebuke these parents who bring these children to Jesus to bless them. He is irate. He is incensed. He is offended at this rebuke from these disciples. Now, of course, we have already seen the disciples rebuke before, haven't we? 
just a few weeks back when we looked at chapter 9, verse 38 through 41. They rebuked, as we've already mentioned, they rebuked the man who was casting out demons in the name of Christ. And there again, Jesus had to correct these disciples that the one who is not against them is for them. So Jesus has already corrected them in this area of rebuking those that the kingdom of God belongs to. But yet here again, we see the disciples rebuking these parents for bringing their children before Jesus. Now we have to ask the question, why? Why would they be rebuking these parents for for bringing these children to Jesus? Why would they do that? Since You know, today we think of Jesus and we get all the pictures of Jesus. He's always smiling with a bunch of children around him. We have to ask the question, why? Why did these disciples rebuke these parents for bringing these children? Well, in the first century, among Hellenistic Jewish communities, children were often looked down on. They were often treated as as second-class citizens. Uh, They were often treated as a nuisance. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we're not too far removed in our own culture with the way we treat children today. So for these disciples, that's how they see these children. They're just little nuisances, taking up the time of the king of the kingdom and his important work. Really what they are doing is rebuking the parents for daring to bring these children to the king of kings as he is doing his kingdom work. As he is preaching, as he is carrying on his ministry, these parents should know better not to take up the time of Jesus and his important work of kingdom work, not to take up the time of this master and of their king. But how quickly these disciples have forgotten the lesson that they learned from Jesus back in chapter 9, verse 33. You recall there the disciples were discussing who was the greatest among them, showing once again their obsession with authority, their pride, their sin of of pride. And Jesus says to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. And he took a child in his arms and he said, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. See, for Jesus, in receiving those who are helpless, in receiving those who are insignificant, is equivalent to receiving Christ himself. It's really similar to what we see with Jesus when he speaks of the sheep that will belong to him when he comes again in his second coming and he judges the living and the dead and he speaks of those sheep that belong to him and in in Matthew 25 verse 40 he says when you give to the least of these you give to me when you give to the least of these you give to me when you feed the hungry when you clothe the naked when you give drink to the thirsty You give to the helpless, you give to Christ. When you receive a helpless little child into the kingdom of God, you receive Christ. Now we must ask the question, what is the kingdom of God here that Jesus refers to in verse 14? 
What is he really saying when he says children belong to the kingdom of God? Well, we could do a study on the kingdom of God. We could do a word study on that phrase, and we could come up with a variety of different angles that different passages show us of the kingdom of God. But really here in Mark, he gives us the essence of what the kingdom of God is. It really is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Notice what Jesus says in verse 14. He says, let the children come to me. And then he essentially identifies himself with the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ is the kingdom of God come down from heaven. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, you have the the writer of the Hebrews tell the Hebrews there, he says, you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the living city of God. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. How have the Hebrews come to the heavenly Jerusalem? How have they come to Mount Zion? How have they come to the city of the living God? It is because they have come to Christ to heavenly Jerusalem, to the kingdom of God come down from heaven. Christ is wrapped up in all the imagery we see in the Old Testament. Temple, kingdom, Jerusalem, it finds its apex, it finds its center. It's consolidated in Christ. So for these children to belong to the kingdom of God is for them to belong to Christ. In Luke 18, verse 15, in the parallel account of this passage, Luke will say these words, even infants were being brought to Jesus that he might touch them. All children, from one day old to 17 years old, belong to the kingdom of God. All children are not to be hindered from coming to Jesus. Really, what these parents are doing as they are bringing these children to Jesus to bless them is they are claiming the very promises of God that they read of in their Hebrew scriptures. The very promise of God that he will be a God both to the parents and to their children. We read earlier in Genesis 17, verse 7, God says to Abraham, I will establish it my covenant between you and your offspring. Isaiah 59, verse 21, which is really a prophecy of the new covenant that will be established when Christ comes and sheds his blood. We read there, God says, this is my covenant. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or the mouth of your children or out of the mouth of your children's children from this time forth and forevermore. Psalm 8 verse 2, out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. These Jewish parents who are bringing their children to Jesus to have him bless them know their Hebrew scriptures. They know their Hebrew scriptures. They know the promises of God to be Savior not only to them, 
but to their offspring, to their children, to their household. And so they come in faith and claim the promises of God. They can't claim the promises of the new covenant that they read of time and time again in their Old Testament scriptures. That God will pour out his spirit not only on them, but on their children, on their household. Think of the words that Jesus says to Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. When Zacchaeus comes to faith in Christ, Jesus says to Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, verse 9, Today salvation has come to your house, for even he is a son of Abraham. Because Zacchaeus is the head of the household and he has come to faith, salvation has come to Zacchaeus's household. And that is a fulfillment of the promises that God gave to Abraham, that he would be a God to him and to his offspring and to his children. Now, there is a question here that we must ask. Are these children saved the moment Jesus blesses them? The moment Jesus places his hands on them? After all, this is the blessing of the king, the king of kings, the eternal king laying his hands on these children and blessing them. And the context indicates here that this is the blessing of the kingdom of God. This is kingdom of God blessings. This is new covenant blessings that he is placing upon these children, blessings tied to the new covenant, which is established in the blood of Christ. Are these children, these infants, according to Luke, saved irrespective of their response to Jesus? Well, I think in order for us to properly answer that question, we need to remember that these are children that are being brought to Jesus by believing parents. He is speaking about children whose parents are already already disciples and who will in turn disciple their children. Sinclair Ferguson writes concerning this passage, such parents know they need to teach their children the responsibilities of kingdom life, as well as the privileges of kingdom possession. If the blessings of God are rejected in disobedience, they are forfeited. I think what Sinclair Ferguson is is showing us there is really two things. Number one, that it is essential and incumbent for these children as they, they grow up to embrace those blessings of God by faith, to grab hold of all the, the blessings of the new covenant by faith. But also, he's also showing the crucial role that parents have in instructing their children in the ways of God, in the ways of the kingdom of Christ. We are, as parents, to teach our children diligently. To teach them so that they would heed the promise of God. To teach them God's word. To to teach them that all the promises of the old covenant find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Now, I must admit, this is particularly convicting for me as a parent of a three-year-old and a one-year-old. 
There are many times when we sit down and usually we try to do our devotions at dinner time and, and we'll get ready to do our devotions and I'll see Braden throwing food or stuffing food in his mouth actually is usually what he's doing and Ben's throwing food and singing to himself and they're doing what one-year-olds and three-year-olds do and I have to admit the thought goes through my head, it creeps into my head, what is the point? <laughs> what is the point of teaching these children? What I'm failing to do in that moment is claim the promise of Christ that the kingdom of God is for children. Parents, continue to feed your kids. Diligently teach your kids God's word because the kingdom of God belongs to them. Teachers who teach Sunday school in here, who teach Wednesday night with the children, don't think for a moment that what you are doing is any lesser in value what is going on with the adults. The kingdom of God is for children. Children, I'm going to do something your old pastor used to do. Look up here for a moment. I don't come up here to teach and to preach simply for your parents. I come to teach and to preach for all those the kingdom of God is for. And Jesus says it is for you. Do not hinder and neglect the children. Jesus says in John 3, the spirit of God is a mysterious thing like the wind and it blows where it wishes. What we learn here in this passage is that one of the places it wishes to blow is in the hearts of children. Teach your children. Do not hinder the children from coming to Jesus and to the kingdom of God. Second, the kingdom of God must be received like a child. The kingdom of God must be received like a child. Verse 15, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now we have to ask the question, what exactly is Jesus saying here? What does he mean that, that we are to receive the kingdom of God like, like a child? Now many have taken the position that there is some supposed virtue in the children that the, the, the disciples and we must have, such as humility or, or innocence, some, some characteristic, some virtue within children that we must possess in order to receive the kingdom of God. However, since we know that Luke refers to infants being part of this crowd, and we know that it is parents that are bringing these children to Jesus, we know that that cannot be the interpretation of this passage. The qualification, rather, of these children is their need. What made them fit subjects for the kingdom of God is that they had nothing, and they needed everything. They are the bottom rung of society. They are helpless and they can offer nothing. 
Now, in Luke's account of this same passage, it's interesting. It comes right off the heels of the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, a parable we all know very well, where you have the Pharisee who's laying out all his good works in prayer before God, seeking to justify himself, seeking to show God why God must accept him and receive him. But then you have the tax collector who is beating his chest. And in beating his chest, he's beating the very seat of his emotions, the seat of all of his faculties. And in the Greek, it literally says, he says, I am the sinner. As though he was the chief of sinners. Yet Jesus tells us the one that walks away justified is not the Pharisee, but the tax collector. And it is after this parable in Luke that Jesus says, we must become like children, like infants, needy, beating our chest, coming to God as the sinner and having no hope, but by the grace of God, covering us in the blood of his son. The founder of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and Westminster Theological Seminary, J. Gresham Machen, a guy who is very much a hero of mine. If, if you have never read on J. Gresham Machen, I would highly, highly encourage you to do a study on this great man. If you, if you want to know what he looks like, I have a picture of him hanging up in my office. It's the picture of the drawing of him. It almost kind of looks like a cartoon, kind of a silly picture, but it actually looks kind of like J. Gresham Machen, the founder of Orthodox Presbyterian Church and Westminster Theological Seminary, on his deathbed. It is said that the last words that he uttered was one of his friends and his colleague, John Murray, at Westminster Seminary. And the words that he uttered to his friend were these, I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Now, what did Machen mean when he used that term, the active obedience of Christ? What is Machen saying there on his deathbed? Well, what we often do is we make a distinction between what we call Christ's passive obedience and Christ's active obedience. Christ's passive obedience is that obedience of Christ unto death, his death of suffering for sin, his, his death of of taking on the penalty of sin at the cross. That's what we talk about when we talk about his passive obedience. But his active obedience is his positive obedience to the law of God throughout his life, rendering positive, perfect obedience to the law of Moses throughout his life. And both Christ's passive And Christ's active obedience must be imputed and reckoned to our account in order for us to stand before the judgment seat of God. In other words, it is not simply enough that we have no sin. It's not simply enough that we are spotless. We must be righteous before a righteous God. And so it is both Christ's passive and his active obedience that must be reckoned and imputed to our account so that we can stand and be judged righteous in the sight of God. And so do you see what Machen is saying here on his deathbed with his last words before he dies? 
I am so thankful that I am righteous in God's sight because Christ has rendered righteousness on my behalf. Here's an absolute stalwart of the faith, a hero of the faith. I read of Machen and I say, really? He did all that in his life? Founder of Westminster Theological Seminary, still a beacon of, of reformed theology for many, many years. Founder of Orthodox Presbyterian Church, a great, a great denomination. He was a man who fought so valiantly for the inerrancy of God's word and for the supernatural elements in God's word in the old modernism versus fundamentalism debate of the early 1900s. His credentials were absolutely impeccable. Yet at the end of his life, all he is is a helpless infant resting on the sheer grace of God found in Christ and in Christ alone. Now that seems easy, doesn't it? Resting in Christ. That sounds easy, doesn't it? We love rest. I just got back from vacation. I love rest. I could have taken another week of it. We love rest. Resting in Christ, that sounds so easy. That's all I have to do is rest in Christ. I find it so fascinating that oftentimes the critique against Reformed theology is that they make it, we make it too easy. Salvation's too easy. All it is is resting in Christ. What I want to suggest to you is that it is not easy. And really what we have seen with these disciples over the last couple of chapters is that what is easy for sinners to do is build themselves up in order to justify themselves. Pharisaism is easy. Building up laundry lists of things that I should do, duties that I must do in order to justify myself to God, that is easy. That comes easy to us as prideful sinners. That comes easy to us as those who are born in sin with a sin nature. It is easy. Pharisaism is easy. It is easy for us to do as the disciples do and puff themselves up, asking who will sit at your right hand. Look at me. See how much I have done. Don't I deserve to come into the kingdom? That is easy for us as prideful sinners. What is hard, brothers and sisters, is the obedience of faith. That is hard. That is what is unnatural to us as prideful sinners, saying nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross do I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, foul I to the fountain fly, save me, Savior, or I die. That's what comes unnatural to sinners born in sin. Resting on Christ and Christ alone sounds so easy on paper. But you and I well know in reality it is not easy. As we deal with shame, as we deal with guilt, as we deal with questions of our assurance that we are truly saved, we are so often, the repetitive pattern of our Christian life is so often like a lover with flowers ripping off each petal and saying, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. And when we're doing well, when we're up, we think that God loves us. 
But when we're down and we stumble, we think that we are not God's children. And that is so often the repetitive, prideful pattern of our Christian lives. And what it is evidence of is our pride and our sin nature. That we are sinners born in sin. And we must learn, as the disciples had to learn, the obedience of faith. That we are nothing more than helpless babes, helpless infants, in constant, constant need of Christ and Christ alone. Nothing in our hands we bring, simply to Christ and to his cross do we cling. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christ has come and that he has come for helpless sinners such as ourselves. That though we were sinners, enemies of God, you have sent your son at the right time to save us, to save us who are helpless. But, oh, Father, how often do we feel that that is for our initial conversion but now it's time for us to do work. So often do we forget that we are always, always, always nothing but the sinner, the tax collector, the helpless child. And it is through the paradox of bringing that to us and reminding us of the fact that we are helpless, that you, that you sanctify and you help us to grow as we lean more and more on Christ and less and less on ourselves. Father, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would help us as poor sinners to rest in Christ, to rest in Christ as a child, as an infant rests in the arms of his mother. Help us, O Lord, to rest in Christ and in Christ alone. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.